And I'm going to ask you to turn to James chapter 1 in the Bible, if you would. It's page 1011 in the House Bible, if you're looking for that. Uh, James chapter 1. Oh, how precious James 1 has been to me. I was tempted, actually, still halfway tempted, to take a short break before our next series, longer series in a Bible book. And just go through the first chapter of James, but I probably won't. But this is uh, uh, just something that the Lord has laid on my heart to, uh, for my own. I, I've needed it, and I trust that uh, that you will be benefited by it as well. I want to preach to you this morning on a precious promise for help in trouble. A precious promise for help in trouble. James chapter 1, beginning... In verse 1, we're really going to focus on 1 to 8, but let's read down through verse 18 now. You follow along in the text, if you will, as I read it out loud. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother rejoice or boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because... Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. A precious promise in this passage, a precious assurance for all of us in our time of trouble. 
And I want you to see, first of all, in this context, the nature of the trouble. Uh, James is writing about two kinds of trouble, if you will, or two aspects of trouble. He calls them in verse 2, trials of various kinds. And later on in the text, he refers to them down in verse 13 as temptation. In fact, look again at 12 and 13. You see them together. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then the very next verse uses the same Greek word, but it translates it differently now. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. So, in other words, there's some things that happen to a Christian that are at one and the same time, often, both a trial and a temptation. And the difference is in the intent behind them. In verse 13, he talks about Uh, the fact that God does not tempt anyone. In other words, God's purpose or his intent in bringing trouble into the life of his child, in allowing that in his providence, in ordaining trouble to come our way, his purpose or his intent in that is never for us to sin. He does not tempt us to sin. Rather, the truth is that Satan tempts us. Our natural desires, verse 13, join in that process in luring and enticing us into sin. They are intent on getting us to to do the wrong thing. So in the terms of temptation, the immediate actor is always in view, namely Satan. It is Satan's plan to tempt you to do evil. But in terms of a trial and a test of your faith, the ultimate actor is in view, the ultimate cause behind what's happening to you, and that is God. And his intent is to test and to prove the genuineness of your faith by means of those trials. And so often, It is one and the same event or one and the same situation, which is both the test from God and the temptation from the flesh and from the devil. And God has a good purpose in it, even while Satan meant it for evil. And that's the way it works. Say, well, I don't quite know if I understand all that. I don't, uh, I don't see how that sort of logically all fits together. And, um, and you know, there, there's, there's something about it maybe that is a little bit beyond us, but I think we all do understand this, that there are things that cause something uh, in an immediate sense, and then there are things that lie behind those causes that led up to those causes or created those things, and God is the ultimate source of all things while he is never responsible for um, the temptations to sin. But in the, in the troubles that come our way, 
these two things are going on. You see them together in a couple of places, several places in the Bible. But I think my mind goes back to Job. Job's testing. You're very familiar, many of you, with the book of Job. Uh, Satan comes to tempt this righteous man named Job to uh, curse God and die. But God is actually behind it, testing Job's faith as if uh, to say that Job's reliance on me, his love for me, is not bound to the fact that I give him lots of good gifts. But his reliance on me is because of who I am, because I am inherently trustworthy. And Job knows that, and I have a relationship with Job. I love him. I know him. He's mine. And so God's intent is to trust him. Right? But both of these are going on at the same time. Uh, another illustration, a negative example this time. Job turned out positively, right? He was a believer. But on the other hand, Second um, Chronicles chapter 18, uh, the Lord determined that he would test a man by the name of Ahab, a king in Israel. And Ahab, in his um, unbelief, uh, was tested by God was to, to demonstrate where his uh, allegiance really was, who he really did trust. And the way that the Lord did this is very interesting and fascinating, and it's caused not a few Christians to scratch their heads, I'm sure, because the Bible says that God sent a, quote-unquote, a lying spirit to tempt uh, Ahab to believe uh, 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 to, to, to speak falsehood to him. And Ahab, on his part, willingly believed that lie because he was determined to believe it. Have you ever noticed that people believe what they want to believe sometimes? And all, in all of this, what was God doing? God wasn't making Ahab sin. God was revealing, he was proving, he was testing, if you will, what was really in Ahab's heart and making it manifest. So, God was at work, Satan was the tempter, but all of that to say this, in, in one sense, every trial that you have, every trial of your faith is on the other side of the coin, a temptation to disbelieve God, right? A temptation to be bitter at God, to be angry. And in the other sense, every temptation from the devil from the flesh, is kind of the other side of the coin of God's testing of our faith, of his trying of our faith in order to prove its genuineness. So all of that matters now in thinking about applications, because we want to have, this is God's word for us today. What are we thinking about? We should be thinking in applying this about our our trials, our troubles that are not necessarily sin, but are tests from God, tests of our faith. And on the other hand, we should be thinking about our temptations, temptations of our flesh and of Satan to, to disbelieve God, to value things more than God, 
to go in a way that is contrary to his command. So keep those things in mind in this context. This is the nature of the trials that uh, James has in mind. And notice also he calls them, in verse 2, trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds. And there are. We could go around the room today and have you raise your hand or if you are so brave and say, all right, here's where I'm really tested. Here's where I, I really have a trial. Here's where my faith just runs up against um, my own inadequacies, where I have to throw myself on the mercy of God and ask for his help. Right? And you know what? As we went across the room, it would sound a little different as we went across the room. One person really has a struggle in a certain area and a certain kind of thing that and another person says, I can't believe you struggle with that. But his struggle would be all his own, her own. We face trials of various kinds. You know, I think sometimes we we get um, a little discontent or envious and say to the Lord, well, Lord, you gave me the wrong trials. I want his trials. I can handle those. I want her troubles. You gave me, why can't, her troubles don't even compare to my troubles. But I want to remind you, friends, that your Lord is wise beyond all measure. He knows exactly how much and what kind of trouble that you need, that you need, so that in the end you may walk away with joy and say, this is a faith that is from God. And he will uphold. There are various kinds. In fact, in, in, in to, to flip the coin, all right, and talk about temptations, it's the same way. Temptations are one of a kind, custom-made by our custom-made flesh. In fact, the word in verse 14, every person is led away by his own desire. You know that little word, own, O-W-N? That's uh, the Greek word, idios, from where we get the word idiosyncrasy. We have our own idiosyncratic temptations. Satan knows where our weak spots are, where our flesh is most entrenched, and that's what he goes for. So when we're applying this passage, we should consider every different kind of moral and spiritual and mental and emotional difficulty that you specifically face. This is what James has in mind. This is what he's talking about. Trials of various kinds, our own idiosyncratic temptations. This is the realm that he is um, uh, that he's speaking to. This is the, the this is what he's talking about. That is the nature of the trouble. What about our mindset toward the trouble? And he's going to say something that, I mean, except for the fact that you've sat in church all your life and you know this passage, it would be shocking to you, right? Imagine you're a first-time reader and you see this. Count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trouble. And 
everybody scratches their heads and say, says, what in the world? How am I supposed to count that joy? And, and the first thing I want to point out is that you have to count it. Um, and that, that word count actually has the idea of evaluating something. Uh, sitting down there and sort of calculating. And, and it's not like we naturally say, we just off the cuff say, oh, good, I'm glad for my trouble today. It's great. I love to have a day full of trouble. No, but when we do sit down and we think God's logic about the trouble, what he's doing in it, it can issue and should issue in joy. Here's why. Verse 3. You see the first word? For. Why? Here's why. Because. Why should you count it joy? Because you know something. What do you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Patience. Endurance. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And for that reason, you anticipate the joyful outcome even of the trouble. I think Paul fills it out a little bit more. James gives you the shorthand version. Paul fills it out in Romans chapter 5. You might want to write this by that. I'll put it on the screen. Romans 5, beginning in verse 3. And uh, this is a great passage as well. But Paul says that we rejoice in our, what? Same thing James is saying, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trouble. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why, Paul? Because we know, that's the same thing that James said, because you know something. What does Paul say we know? Because you rejoice in your suffering because we know that suffering produces what? Endurance. Same thing James was saying. It's almost like they were led by the same, you know, source or something, right? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Now, that word character uh, in the ESV, it's a hard word, honestly, to sort of get in English, I think. Um, it's not, you know, we say character, we think um, he's wise, truthful, and brave, you know, so sort of the Boy Scout kind of thing. But the word translated character here is more the idea that you're um, of, of uh, provenness, you could almost say in English. I don't even know if that's an actual word, but um, it's a proven character. It's tested and been shown to be what you hoped it was, um, provenness. Uh, so here, follow the logic again. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and that provenness produces hope. Why? Because God has proved that your faith is genuine, that it's really from Him, that it's not some passing thing, that it's real. You faced a great trial, you faced a huge temptation, and you believed God and pushed through it and held on to him all the way. Why? Because your faith was true. So rejoice, brother. But you know why? Because there's a whole lot of people whose faith isn't that way. 
There are a whole lot of people whose faith is fleeting. It's not lasting. It's not saving faith. And so you can look forward with joy to your faith being proven. Here's the logic then. Suffering, endurance. Suffering produces endurance, perseverance in faith. And that perseverance proves your true character, and that character, that provenness, brings you to a great hope and confidence in God's work in your life. Christian hope is tied to endurance in the faith. I'll say that again. Christian hope is tied to endurance in the faith. And one of the tests of true Christianity, true Christianity, is its endurance. Does it last? Jesus told a parable about the seeds on the ground. Remember that story? Most of you know. The sower went out and sowed, scattered the seed, and some fell on the kind of ground where the birds just came and ate it up. The seed is the word of God. It was just completely gone out of that person's life. It seemed to make no difference. But there are two kinds of soil where the seed got into the ground a little bit and it started to come up, but it didn't last. came up for a little while and then withered away. But the good ground was the kind in which the seed took root. Roots went down deep. The tree grew up. The, the, the plant grew up and it produced fruit. And it gave them the sower what he wanted. It lasted. So there is, uh, there are tests that God gives of our faith to ask whether it will last. Um, when a scientist wants to discover the true character of a certain mineral that he has a question about, he'll do different kinds of tests, right? You remember this from grade school science way back in the day? I started to Google it and look it up so I could you know, enhance my illustration a little bit, but um, I thought, well, you probably won't remember it anyway. So uh, I, I just, all I remember is that there was something called an acid test where certain kinds of acids were placed on these minerals and if they reacted in certain ways, it would prove what kind of character um, was uh, in that mineral, uh, what kind of mineral it was. Or there was, a, it seems like there was a scratch test, right? You took one kind of mineral and you scratched it against another kind and if one this one scratched that one instead of that one scratching this one you knew it was on a certain place in the scale and then you could sort of narrow down and figure out exactly what you were dealing with right you do these tests in order to prove that this is what you think it is or not what you think it is or whatever and in the same way God does that with our faith he does you might call it a pressure test He brings pressure to bear, pressure in the form of troubles, trials, and temptations. And someone says, oh, but I cracked. I cracked under pressure. What does that say about the genuineness of my faith? And I want to remind you that this this is a test, but the test is not like, a test in a single moment. It's the test of a lifetime. The key here is endurance. Is it a faith that endures? And it falters, and it fails, and it struggles, and sometimes it's weak, and sometimes it even has doubts. But in the end, it keeps going. It perseveres. It keeps running back to Christ. It keeps saying, oh, God, help. 
It says, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. And that kind of faith, proven by many tests over the course of a lifetime, we can take joy in because it's real. It's real. And we belong to the Lord. And oh, what a blessing that God promises to keep those who are his. Right? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, maybe last week. I don't know. I probably mentioned it so often. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Faithful is he who called you. He will surely do it. So we know, as verse 4 in Romans says, we know that our suffering produces endurance. In a true Christian, suffering produces Endurance. Not it might produce endurance, it produces endurance. So, rejoice. But of course, these assurances that God will do this work in us are not ever meant to just make us passive. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to feel the way I want to. And if God, if I'm a Christian, He's going to make me persevere. We bear a responsibility in this. This is why James says in verse 4 here, let steadfastness have its full effect. You know, this is your responsibility. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I I should say to you, brother, sister, persevere in your faith, even while I tell you God will preserve you in the faith. We, we are to continue to believe and trust in God. Now, here's a question. How can we actively, diligently allow steadfastness in trials and temptations to be formed in our lives? What resource would possibly be sufficient for us to persevere when the worst happens. When the temptation is seemingly beyond bearing, what hope is there for any of us in light of our weakness? And the answer is wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. The scripture says, you should be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Lacking in nothing. And the very next words are, if any man lacks, let him ask God. (laughs) I just love it that he put those right together. Same word, in fact. You should be lacking in nothing. That's what you want to be. How many are there? If you're lacking nothing in your Christian life, raise your hand. Anybody lacking nothing? All right, I don't see any hands except mine. That should be down. Every one of us says, oh, Lord, I lack. I lack. Oh, Lord, I falter, I fail, I struggle, I doubt, I sin. If anyone lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God. Let him ask God. And that brings us then to our help in trouble 
the help in our trouble. And I want you to see what that help is. That help is called wisdom. God will give wisdom. Now, wisdom is not equated with being completely removed from our trials. God didn't say, if any of you is lacking, God will take all your troubles away. But he rather said, he will give wisdom. Wisdom, I think, probably is best defined as God's way of thinking about living life. Thinking God's thoughts about your troubles. God's thoughts about your trial or your temptation. You know, sometimes we don't understand God's specific will, right? We've all been there. We don't know all of his purpose in allowing us to be diagnosed with cancer. We don't know what God is exactly up to when he ordains that you lost your job. We don't know what exactly he intends by allowing us to live in an increasingly sinful culture. We don't know exactly what God is up to, but we do know this. We know that God wants us to think rightly through that situation, to be wise in thinking about all of the troubles that we face. So wisdom is the skill to think and act rightly in the face of difficulty. And I want to make that clear because I think we sort of rob this verse a little bit of its weight because we normally think of wisdom, at least a lot of people do, in terms of God's sort of providential guidance, right? So we say, I need God's wisdom so that I know which car I should purchase, this one or that one. Or I need God's wisdom so that I know whether I should go to college or trade school. Or I need God's wisdom so that I can to know whether I should apply for this new position at work. And, and, you know, there is, I'm not discounting that kind of talk completely. We want God's, God's wisdom and his providential guidance. But in James's mind, that's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about knowing whether I should go to college A or college B here. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. What is it? What's the whole context here? He's talking about persevering in the face of trouble. Trials and temptations. If you lack in that, ask God for the wisdom to live and think rightly, the wisdom to resist temptation, the wisdom to persevere in trust and in faith in God through the trial. Keep that in your mind when we're talking about wisdom here. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is God's gracious help for those who lack in their times of trouble. Now, Consider the nature of that help. And this is this is the sweet spot of the whole sermon. So if you fell asleep, now's the time to wake up. Verse 5 is it. This has just been so precious to my soul. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who, look at this, who gives generously to all without reproach. Oh, every word is beautiful. We're just going to squeeze every word just for a minute and see what sweet nectar drops from these words. 
God gives. God gives. Just take that word. He does, right? For God so loved the world that He he gave. Just as it is characteristic for humans to lack, it is characteristic for God to give. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. He has no need of anyone to give anything to Him. He has no need for anything outside of Himself. His love is an overflow of His happiness within Himself. And like a child is the offspring of the love and the happiness of a couple that they share between themselves, so all of his benefits on this world are an overflow of his goodness. He is a God who gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives to all. He even gives common graces to his enemies. And how much more will he give to his children when his children come to him asking Him for their needs. We bring nothing to the table except our lack. But He is a giving, giving Father. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and who doesn't like to do that, how much more will He give the Holy Spirit to those who, what? To those who, who ask. He is a God who gives. And notice also, He gives generously. Just let that word flow down over your soul and mind. God, if you think about the context, you're struggling with temptation, you're struggling with the trial. And God says, Okay, I'm going to give you help. The help will come when you ask, and I will give you wisdom. I will give, and I will give generously. The word means simply. Um, It means openly. It means without uh, without limits, uh, liberally, sincerely. You think of God that way? I mean, literally, think of this. When you're struggling hard, and you're tempted to be bitter with God or tempted to give in to your flesh, and you to go to God and you say, God, help. How do you envision He is um, receiving your prayers? I can help but think of the father of the prodigal son who returns to him. What does that father say? He says, all right, I'm finally back, huh? Yeah, I knew this day would come. Let's see if we got a few scraps left over from dinner. The father says, bring the ring, bring a robe, and kill the fattened calf, because we're going to have a feast. I mean, it seems, you know, it almost, to us, almost seems kind of unwise of that father on an earthly, you know, I don't know, maybe he shouldn't have. You know, been quite so like made no big deal out. But this this is all to show us what the, the lavish, abundant wisdom of God that He pours out upon needy people when they come to Him. He gives generously, and notice He gives generously to all, 
to all. Oh, I love that. This is not just a special class of super Christians who get their prayers answered. This is not just those who've got it all together. All. Adults, kids, men, women, ministers, laymen, all who come seeking wisdom to make it through this trial, to to endure this temptation, all will be given wisdom. I just hope we learn to pray for the right thing. Not God make it easy, but God make me holy. God gives wisdom in response to those kinds of prayers to all. And then notice he gives without reproach. Without reproaching. This is a strong word. It's almost, in fact, I think literally it is always negative uh, in, in its use in the Bible. The ESV translates it in some places as revile or insult or renounce. God does not do this. When you come to him with your failings and with your needs and with your weakness and with your doubts, with your sins, he does not revile and insult and renounce. God does sometimes chasten, but it is always for our what? Always. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens the one whom he receives, the sons that he receives. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? So when he chastens us, it is only our good that he has in mind. He does not cast us off. And honestly, this is the way we are tempted to be when we're dealing with other people's failures. To say in our hearts, all right, you know what? That's enough. You've messed up again and again. That's all the help. That's all the mercy you're going to get from me. I'm done. I, I am done with you. I'm walking away. I've shown you how to do this again and again. I've taught you. Why can't you get it? What's wrong with you? And I feel like God ought to talk that way to us if he were just perfectly fair about it. Right? But we're told to go to him in our weakness and our failure for for wisdom and he will give without reproach, without rejection. It is because God is who he is that he says it will be given. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And I want to throw one more in here, description of the way in which God gives us this wisdom. And it's actually down in verse 17. So three of them in verse 5, but I just couldn't help but pull in verse 17 because he's still talking about the same basic ideas here. And he says there that God God also gives consistently. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no variation in this God whom you're seeking for wisdom in your times of trial, trouble, tribulation. Uh, I like to be outside in this time of year. Pretty much as soon as it's not so terrible that you're sweating to death, you go outside, 
until it's uh, you know too cold that you can barely stand it. Uh, want to be outside, and so I'll get a chair and go outside and sometimes study or read uh, under a nice shade tree on a warm, warmish day, and you know that shade feels so good. And until after you've sat there for an hour, and then all of a sudden you realize, man, my neck is so hot, and and the shade's over here, and there's the the sun works its way across the sky, and and uh, the shadows shift, and the coolness moves, but God is not like that. He's not like some fickle people that you know who are warm one day and then cold the next. God is never having a down day where he feels like quitting on you if you are his child. And in spite of his varying providences, some which appear pleasurable and some which appear very difficult, in spite of the varying providences of God, his purposes are always unchanged. His intent is always for our good. However you're feeling today, friend, if you're a Christian, however you are feeling, I want to remind you that as in Romans chapter 8, God is for you. He is disposed now toward you the same as he was in those three hours that his son was hanging on the cross for you. He is unchanged. His mercies are new every morning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loved you before the foundation of the world. He will love you to the uttermost. His love is timeless for his children. There is no shadow of turning. The God who saved you all those years ago, remember that? The God who first awakened your heart to the wonders and the glories of the gospel. Listen to me, he's the God who is at work right now in your troubles. He's not changed. What he's saying to you is, child, trust me. Child, wait on me. Fight the sin in the wisdom that I will give you, you will endure because I will uphold you with the wisdom of my might. And he says, well, I feel like God has abandoned me. And I will say, you know, I think there are times when God does withdraw the sense of his presence momentarily. And he may certainly have altered your circumstances and made them difficult. But his purpose is to give wisdom to his children, and that never, ever wavers. There is no shadow due to change. But notice who it is that receives that help. That help comes to those who who do what? We ask, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him, everybody say it out loud, go ahead. This is, this is input time, this is like classroom time. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him, okay, I just, just, just say it, is, is somehow good for us, to, remind, to cement in our mind. God calls us to be on our knees asking, seeking, knocking, in the worst of our temptations, in the, in the longest of our trials, to pray, to acknowledge our need, our inability. We don't ask because we are too preoccupied with self or we're too embarrassed, having failed him again. But he says to us, ask, I will not reproach you. I will give to you liberally the wisdom that you need to live the, your life. 
in, in your trials, according to my will, if you will ask. And ask in faith, he says. Look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Not like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Ask for wisdom and it will be given. Friends, most assuredly know and believe this, that God will not abandon you, his child. He will no more deny your prayer for wisdom to resist temptations or perseverance in your trials than a mother could deny her crying baby milk. Can you imagine a mom saying, Hey, kid, take care of yourself for once. That's more, uh, that's less unthinkable than God abandoning his child. So maybe there's someone here this morning, and literally you have been tempted to think this week, I don't know if I will survive these temptations. Or I don't know if I will endure this trial. And God says to you, if you lack, ask. But ask in faith, confident that I will uphold you. With no doubting, keep on asking, keep on believing, keep on waiting, keep on persevering. God will keep you to the end. He will give grace to endure. He will preserve you through this. Spurgeon said, Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never fell out of the ark. And that's true. God will preserve those who are his. If you're in Christ, friend, you won't fall out of Christ. But you have to ask. You have to keep on asking and keep on believing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's faith. Ask in faith, brothers, sister. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. God who gives. Who gives generously. Who gives generously to all. Who gives generously to all without reproaching, and it will be given. It will. Let's pray to him now. Father, your word is on the line. You have given us this assurance and we want to bank on it, to hold on to it. And if if God is a liar, there is no hope for us. But we are absolutely convinced that whatever you say, you will do. And Lord, please uphold your children here, the weak, the wandering, the straying, every one of us. Every one of us. Some of us have strayed, we've fallen, we've doubted, we've been 
tempted to give up, even this week, Lord, we confess it. We're sorry. We ask you for wisdom to persevere. And we ask you with hope, even with joy, because we are sure that in the end, by your grace, we will remain steadfast. Let it be so, please, Lord, let it be so for your eternal glory, for your name's sake, for your honor's sake. Amen.